data literacy is like reading in some cases. If you don't know how to read, if you give someone a book, it's useless. Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. The hospitality industry has been one of the hardest hit industries over the last year. Amid countless closures and reopenings, restaurants have overcome many obstacles in an effort to survive. Through these struggles, restraint professionals have turned to data to optimize everything from takeout orders to restaurant layouts, all the way to analyzing market recovery. Grant Parsimian is the Senior Vice President for Data and Analytics at OpenTable, an online restaurant reservation service that is empowering restaurants of all sizes to be served through the use of technology. On this episode of The Data Chief, Grant dives into OpenTable's state-of-the-industry site, designed to illustrate how COVID-19 has impacted restaurants through powerful data storytelling. Grant and Cindy also discuss the importance of data literacy and picking the right analytics tools to match business use cases. Enjoy. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for you to use search and AI to analyze your company's data lightning fast. Business people at companies like Walmart, Hulu, and Medtronic use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can too. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. This week on The Data Chief, we have both a wonderful person and the best combination, data and food, especially when we're eating out. We have the Senior Vice President, Data and Analytics from Open Table, Grant Parsimian. Welcome, Grant. Thank you. Nice to be here. Great. And Grant, you're joining us from beautiful Southern California, right? I am. I live in Los Angeles, California. So I've been here pretty much majority of my life. Okay. Where dining is now finally, after <laughs> a long year, back on the uptick. It is. It is. It's actually, um, LA has been rebounding very nicely, um, although not all indoor dining has returned, but um, LA restaurants have added quite a large amount of outdoor dining. So that's been great to see. That's great. Now, Grant, I think many people are familiar with OpenTable from the consumer side, but tell us a little bit also how data is used on the restaurant side or on the business side. Sure. So as you said, OpenTable is a two-sided business. So obviously consumers know the product, the app and the, and the website. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that OpenTable has a software that runs at the restaurant. So at the restaurant, um, the restaurateurs use our software to manage their floor plans, manage their seats, um, reservations, and all their essentially all their business. So they use our product to look at how many people they can bring in, how many for walk-ins, for phone reservations. And in terms of how they use data, um, Open Table has been, you know, part of the part of my goal has always been to provide insights to the restaurants so they can run their businesses more efficiently. You know, what does this really mean? It means, you know, we provide benchmarking data for the restaurants, how they're doing in relation to their neighbors or the set of restaurants, um, how they're doing in terms of optimizing the demand. The demand being that the, uh, the consumers. 
meaning how many people they can bring in at what times and how many shifts they should do, uh, what should be the optimal turn times, what should be, you know, how they should combine tables. So a lot of data, there's a lot of data that goes into optimization. There's also data in terms of um, knowing how to forecast what they should expect in certain days. There's, you know, a lot of, a lot of information that's given to the restaurant so they can just become, um, you know, a lot more efficient and take full advantage of the data. So great. And in, in a pandemic in 2020, the fact that you have this data across the industry has been game changing. In fact, releasing right. a one of a kind state of the industry and using this to better inform and lobby for safer openings. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. When the lockdowns began last year, we knew, you know, this was affecting restaurants. It was devastating to the restaurants. Yes. But honestly, there wasn't that much news about how much it was affecting the restaurants, right? So you you had, you know, similarly airlines and hotels, I feel like they they were in the media a lot. They were talking about what is, you know, pandemic do, doing to them, how much their business have gone down. Our goal with the state of the industry um, dashboards was to show the media, to show the journalists, economists, how severely restaurants were being impacted by, by the lockdown. So initially, we just started out, you know, putting the consolidated numbers of how much the business has gone down in the restaurants. We provided this data at neighborhood level, state level, and the country level. And it really resonated with, uh, with folks. And I think you know, we had economists, journalists looking at this. I think you have some of the stats. I think we got more than 20 billion news impressions on this data. Uh, but I think, you know, my goal or team's goal was always to, to really, you know, showcase or not showcase, or just bring it to people's attention how, how badly the restaurants were impacted by, by these. Yeah. And it is like a tale of Two situations, two countries, two worlds. I was looking at your most recent data mid-April, and this is where you see in Australia, great, in restaurant dining was over 200%. I'm guessing that was Easter year over year. In the US, we're getting better. We're still down about 25% back you know, comparing to 2019. But you look at France and England- and right. Germany still just really difficult. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things we did not know last year was that how much demand was going to be impacted once the regulations eased up, right? So that was, we were scared that people will probably, you know, not go to the restaurants as much as they did previously. But I think uh, what the data is showing us that there's a lot of pent up demand. Absolutely. As soon as regulations are lifted, people are flocking restaurants. And I think that's a great news for everyone. Um, I think, as you mentioned, um, European Union currently is in lockdown. So you don't see a lot of um, business returning. I think April 15th, we may see some openings, specifically, I believe, in London. And in terms of U.S., you could see, you know, some states obviously doing extremely well. Some states are still impacted. The trend is the same. As soon as regulations are lifted, people are going back to restaurants, which is great news. Yeah, yeah, it is good. Well, and also it's great news. So it's not all about the lockdowns and capacity. There's some interesting Mm -hmm. statistics uh, diving into more data. 
that having open table, for example, being data-driven, 3% higher tips for the waiters and the service staff. So being a waitress in college, that matters. And for Uh the businesses, ultimately, it's that customer loyalty, 2% higher repeat customers and 67% higher share of wallet or average bill size more than other diners. That's a huge business benefit for restaurants that use OpenTable and are data-driven. Did that surprise you? No, it didn't surprise me. I mean, I think to take a little bit of back. So when I joined OpenTable, we, our sales folks, and everyone knew the benefit of OpenTable's network. However, we did not have those stats to go to the restaurants and to then make, show them. I think part of, yeah, to make the case for it, right? So we case. all know, exactly. We know intuitively that people who make reservations through the network who discover tend to spend higher than someone just who's just walking in or perhaps, um, you know, going in from other channels. But, you know, part of my, I should say, duties or, or the job in the first year or two is to start collecting this information and start making these insights available to the restaurants. Um, so definitely, it's not surprising. Uh, we do find that open table customers are better in, in latter ways in terms of for the restaurants, in terms of their sh- no-show rates being, you know, much lower than uh, and perhaps um, other channels and repeat rates and, and total spend is continuously, I've looked at POS data, at open table diners are continuously spending more than perhaps phone and walk-ins. I wonder if that's because, is there a correlation with being more digitally savvy? They're booking online they're more loyalty. I don't know. Those are all hypotheses that, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of those signals or the demographic information to yeah. extrapolate that information. But we're looking back and that, that trend has always held steady. A lot of the open table diners are foodies as well, right? So meaning they do appreciate food, they do appreciate restaurants. So it's not surprising to me, right? So it's, it's, our, our diner base is perhaps more biased with folks who are who appreciate dining more than others. Right, that makes sense. And you talked about when you first joined at Open Table and and having to prove the value. We debate a lot in the industry that measuring success or measuring value from data and analytics is difficult. Very few organizations, in fact, most recent stat, less than 14% go back and do an ROI. And I say, at least capture the anecdotes of business benefits. Tell us how you've been able to build this business case, prove out the value over time. Absolutely. It, It is a very difficult question. But I think one of the ways that Open Table and the data that we've shown is we've tried to measure the incrementality um, that, that open table brings to the restaurants. What does that really mean? Bookers that wouldn't have found your restaurant if it wasn't for our network, our recommendations engine, our, our discovery mechanisms. So we're able to show the restaurants the, the business that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Is that the only value that open table brings in? Absolutely not. Um, so if you think about it, the efficiencies they gain from not having a person answering phones, and then not to mention the convenience to the consumers. To be honest with you, I can't imagine, you know, picking up a phone and calling a restaurant <laughs> where I can just do two, two clicks, right? And I think just the right. convenience factor, those things 
they're convenient, but in terms of my ROI calculations, they're, you know, we're not focusing on them as much, but we focus a lot on incrementality that the open table network brings to the restaurants. Um, and we have different dashboards and reports that we've created over the years that shows the incrementality that's coming from open table to those restaurants. So take a baseline and show the incremental improvement, the before and after. We do. We do. In some cases, we do baselines. But I think in most cases where we could say, let's say you got 1,000 reservations from OpenTable, we could tell you out of 1,000 how many of those users were undetermined when they started the search, meaning they did not specifically look for your restaurant. They were browsing. They were looking at our recommendations. And we matched your restaurant to, to them, right? So that we could show, for argument's sake, 30% of those reservations came from undecided diners. That's an incremental business um, to them. They wouldn't have otherwise gotten. Right. Yeah. Okay. Got it. That's huge. Yeah. That's a big increase in traffic, customer traffic that they otherwise would have missed out on. Absolutely. I mean, we have created a marketplace, right? So where we're matching diners and we have a lot of diners in U.S. almost, uh, I think we're by far the largest uh, reservation platform. So we're able to, you know, find or, or match the best restaurants for the folks that are looking for. Yeah. So Grant, the other thing is you have been in the BI and data and analytics space for a very long time, going back to eHarmony and Yahoo and Digital Insight even, and EDS. I remember EDS. <laughs> um, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about some of the technology trends that you've seen over time. And what are you most excited about, about the current state at OpenTable? Obviously, I've been in the data uh, space for about 20, over 20 years or so in terms of BI tools and analytics. What I'm excited about that it's more and more becoming more about, less about you know, developing views for folks, more about creating, giving the tools to the end users to create their own views. Um, I think this is a trend that will continue. I personally feel like in the BI space, canned reports, if you would call them, or predefined views are going to become obsolete in, in, in few years, just because I think they have been proven that once you create a view, you're almost guaranteed that it's it's somewhat out of date. And, yeah. and, and I think more and more you could find ways and then tools become more sophisticated where we provide the ability for the users to create whatever they're looking for, essentially give them the ingredients and give them a platform where they can build it. I think this trend will continue. And I think companies that do this well will win. Um, I think eventually the way I look at it is in the past, you had report developers, you had folks who were um, you know, dashboard developers. I think that's going to disappear. I think the folks who are analyzing the data will be the ones doing that. So I think that that trend will continue. I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about that because honestly, it's, it's for the best because no one enjoys building a view that becomes obsolete in about a week, right? So, uh, and also it's the speed of, you know, building something, analyzing it and time to action. The more you can shorten that time between someone who has a question about the business and then and, and finding the answer, the better that's going to be for the business. In terms of scalability, um, I think 
database technologies that they're enabling users to have more elastic processing have been game changers. In instances where in the past you had to grow your data storage and processing at the same rate, big stopper for folks who had a lot of data, um, I mean, deep data, and they had to continually buy more processing. I think the new vendors that are uh, decoupling the two are enabling users to, or, or um, companies to, to increase performance without really increasing the cost. Right. There's a lot in there. Let's unpack a couple points. So the days of the dashboard are dead or definitely on the decline. On the it's decline, I would on say. On the decline. Okay. So there's two two sides to this. One, how do those dashboard developers that have invested in those technologies, how do they feel then about truly democratizing data and analytics to the non-technical, the non-analysts, the true business people? Are they excited about this or are they fearful, like, well, what's my role going forward? I think, you know, I, I can't generalize that. And I take it by case by cases. And what I told to my team, we have developers, obviously, dashboard developers and uh, report developers in the past. And I kind of showed them what the path is going to look like for them, right? So they can either go more into the data engineering side of it, the data preparation side of it. And in most cases, our folks are more excited about that part of it versus, you know, continually updating dashboards and reports, right? Right. Um, in terms of data, demo, uh, you know, providing it to the business users, I think everyone sees the value of that, right? So for instance, meaning, you know, once we provide a platform where the end users can develop um, certain views, and we've done that in the past, and we've seen how much how creative the business users become in terms of creating their views and how quickly they can develop. It's not surprising. I think, you know, if you have a team of 10, let's say report developers versus 200 people that potentially can, you know, create views, just the rate of creation is just so much higher. Right. So, and then ultimately giving them the ability to do this is always going to be much, much faster and more valuable than, um, you know, creating a ticket in the old world or oh, waiting for the oh. report developer to to update something. I think that's I, I, in terms of how you know the rate of change has changed and the, how that more dynamic the companies are. That was that was never efficient, and now it's becoming even more inefficient. You know, because the rate of change is higher in some most companies, right? Absolutely, so the business yeah. is evolving much faster. Yeah. So then I do think the pace of change has definitely accelerated. And we know that with COVID, people have said they have accomplished in one year what they planned to take 10 years. So we know this. But then on the other side of the spectrum, we also as an industry often have low data fluency one survey statistic was only 22% of business people are confident with their data or analytical right. skills. So some will argue and say, no, you can't do self-service until we upskill first. Others say, no, it's like teaching somebody to read. You have to give them more and more books. That way they hone those skills. What are your views? It's kind of in between the two, <laughs> uh, meaning that it can't be... You can't overwhelm business users, right? When I say this, you can't just expect 
someone that's going to be as driven as, as, as a data analyst to invest, let's say, an hour or two in data. I think that expectation is perhaps too high. You know, what's been successful at OpenTable is partnering with our sales and training teams, creating curriculum for data literacy, right? So right now we have, um, when someone new joins our sales or account management teams, they go through a data training program, right? Where the trainers teach them how to read data. And, and I think to your point, data literacy is like reading in some cases, right? So yes. if you don't know how to read, if you give someone a book, that's kind of a useless, it's useless, right? If you don't know the basics about um, doing that. So there has to be some guardrails. It can't be, you can't overwhelm the users. You have to have more focus in terms of what you want, um, you know, you know, users to learn. Um, and then you build on that. And I think even then you're always going to have folks who just gravitate towards data and in the, in the same exact role and then folks who don't. And, and what do you do with that? We've always, I've always you know, taken a look at, and I've gone and interviewed folks that I see in my platform that run 10X the queries of someone else in the same exact role. And I ask them like, what is it? What's so different about you versus the other person? And oftentimes I find is that the other person is just, doesn't know how to use the data, right? In terms of, I think, from insight to action. And I think once you kind of show how you can make better decisions and ultimately be better at what you're doing at your job, I think that starts sticking. And I think finding that connection is, is very important. Ultimately, everyone wants to do well at their job. Yes. And often people feel like the investment that they're going to put into the tool may not, the ROI may not be there. And I think it's our job, trainer's job to show that, you know, how they can actually use data. And I think data literacy is not a, is not a project. It's, it's a program. Um, you constantly have to be doing this and constantly you have to think about, you know, if you introduce something, how is this going to affect everyone else? And you have to be good at it. I thought it was interesting, your word choice there, the training on the data, less about the technology. And I think maybe that's where the industry, it's taken a long time. We, historically, we spent too much time on the technology and not enough on the data. Absolutely. And I, and I think for me, in, for my data science team, so all the teams, it's always about data. You know, technologies are there to, to make things easier for us, right? If you think about it this way, it shouldn't be the other way. If you need to train someone on the technology more than on the data, that means perhaps you're, you're not doing your job well enough. Right. Okay. Meaning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> meaning, meaning, meaning you haven't selected the tool. Perhaps you have um, made design things that are overly complicated. Right. And I think that's what I mean by I haven't done your job well, meaning that, you know, you can very well design overly complex things or, or expect the users to know the tool in an advanced level to get the insight that they're looking for. And that's what I mean by that. It's more about how do you make getting the insight as easy as possible for the users? And I think that's what you constantly have to. And, you know, tools, uh, I think in the 20 years, what I've seen is that obviously tools have gotten more segmented in terms of uh, what they're good at. Um, in the past, perhaps you could have had one tool that did everything for you. Um, I think years back that I realized 
I don't think that's going to be realistic anymore. Um, and I think there's going to be tools. Um, and I think you should have a portfolio of tools, perhaps, that do certain things. And I think finding what tool is good for certain analysis is, is, is becoming more more important. Meaning you don't want to cram every single use case into one single tool um, because you've selected technology before taking a look at your use cases and now you're faced with, now I got to do everything in this set of tools. And I, and I don't believe that. I, I look at the use cases, I look to see what would be the best solution and then seeing what technologies would um, make this easier for the users to do it. So it's a little bit of a kind of a, not backwards, but looking at it from the, from the user's perspective, not from the technology's perspective. No, no. Yeah. So to me, that's not backward, that's forward or the right way to do it. It's the the (laughs) right tool for the user and the use case. So can you share how you have positioned the different tools within your portfolio? From a technology perspective, so we have, like other companies, we have a number of BI tools, right? So we have ThoughtSpot, we have MicroStrategy, and we do have Tableau. We run all of those on top of Snowflake, so we do have a lot of users who use Snowflake directly. How do you separate what tool gets used for what, right? So it can be very overwhelming for someone, let's say, who comes in, is looking for certain insights, like what tool do I need to go to? Like, it's, it can be overwhelming even with those tools. So what we've done is that, you know, for ThoughtSpot, since ThoughtSpot is, you know, great specifically for creating your own views, quick analysis, ad hocs. You know, for us, you know, we've taken the most used metrics, when I say most used, the most common KPIs uh, and most relevant historical data, and we've put that into, into ThoughtSpot. So this is a place where everyone runs ad hocs and asks questions. Why can't we put everything in there? So obviously there's limitations in terms of the, the cost benefit. Secondly, um, my you know, thought here is that we want to make ThoughtSpot a very simple place where any user from whatever role that they have, they can run questions without being overwhelmed with amount of information is in there. And, you know, MicroStrategy um, sits underneath that, which is a little bit more, it has all KPIs, it has perhaps all historical data. Um, the way I look at it is this, someone can start their journey on ThoughtSpot and they can narrow in on certain insights and they say, well, I really need a lot more information about this or perhaps more dimensions about this. And the MicroStrategy is, is they can go into MicroStrategy and perhaps run more reports or create or, or look um, in their dossiers, the data they're looking for. You know, what works for me may not work for you, meaning that my use cases in a given company are such that this works really well. Uh, and, and now with all the different specializations and you know, how the data is being used, your stack could completely be different. Well, and I think it's also that natural evolution of technology mm-hmm. evolving over time and state right. of the art evolves over time. And what many companies are good at is bringing in new technology, but not necessarily phasing out. And this is then when you get a mess over time, or they have duplicate overlapping, significant overlapping capabilities as the platforms evolve. But I want to go to, because you also talked about the elastic processing and storage, and you mentioned Snowflake. 
So when you first began at Open Table, Snowflake didn't really exist at that point in time. No, it so, didn't. <laughs> so um, tell us about your journey to the cloud and the impact that that has had. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we, when I started about nine years ago, um, MPPs are probably your best choice um, for data warehousing. And that's what I had. But, you know, it's always been kind of a, you know, buying an, yet another appliance when your data grows or if you need processing. That was always in a harder sell for the CFOs and, and yeah. others, right? So in terms of justifying that, I actually looked at Snowflake, I want to say about five years ago now. I just conceptually, you know, when they talked about they figure out a way to separate compute from storage, that really intrigued me. So I, I spoke to them very early on. I don't think they had a lot of big clients at the time, even though conceptually it made a lot of sense. But I was like, I think I'm going to keep an eye on this technology for a while. And I think, um, which I did, and I saw they did you know, really great progress in the, from that point on. And I think I want to say the timelines are getting a little bit blurred, but I want to say about three years ago, we decided like this is a technology that I want to move, in, move into just because, you know, this is, you know, it's going to enable me to have relatively very cheap storage for the data, but the elasticity of compute was extremely important for me because if we have a lot of, you know, we have deep data. So if we're doing ETL processes that require a lot of compute for four or five hours, I don't really need to, you know, in the old world, I'd, I would have to have gotten three, four appliances to, to get the same uh, compute, right? So in this yeah. In, in this world, uh, I could just instantiate an extra large for two hours and then turn it off, right? So for me, that was that was huge. Um, and, and secondly, you know, be able to have different tools, as as you see with you know all of our you know different tools, we can instantiate different sizes of data warehouses, um, you know, to for the appropriate tools. So that really, you know, for me, that was really important. And and I think at the same time. I think you I think you kind of alluded to this is that as the company, as we moved a lot of our data from on-prem to the cloud, um, as data gravity starting pulling me to the cloud, I think this is a good transition for me to to go over to Snowflake in the cloud. So that was an important piece as well. Yeah. So did you do a lift and shift or a lift and redesign? We did lift and shift. Okay. We kept our data model intact when we moved over. I think for the most part, I mean, we had to redesign all of our ETLs, um, not because of the technologies I chose, but I, I felt like this was a good opportunity for me to, perhaps this was a time for me to really evaluate some ETL tools that traditionally we use or historically we used and, and, and see how we can you know, take advantage of um, you know, some of the open, tool, open source tools uh, for ETL. So because of that, we had to redesign a lot of our ETLs. Right. And if you think about this, there's the elastic compute, the separation of compute and storage, but some other things that are exciting about Snowflake are the data sharing capabilities as well as combining or or having both the machine learning data science workloads and the BI right. and analytics workloads in the same place. Are you leveraging either of these capabilities? Yes, actually. So, so data sharing is extremely important. Um, so we do have some 
fresh on partner groups that were doing data sharing, Snowflake to Snowflake data replication. Oh, um, I think, which um, if you think about it, no one, no one liked FTP, um, no. right? So <laughs> uh, it, it was it just insanely insecure and then time consuming and you had to extract data, move it, and then someone else had to do it and just the time that it took. So we started doing data sharing first within our sister companies in terms of, um, you know, moving data from, you know, one area to the other. It worked really well. We were doing, you know, U.S. West 2 to U.S. East. Then we began, um, you know, doing a proof of concept, sharing this data with our some of our larger restaurant groups who, you know, we provide data just like I think you asked in the past, like, how do we help restaurants? In some cases, we do reports, but in some, some of these cases, we provide turnkey data warehouse for them to use in their analytics, right? So if you think about it, um, I can create a virtual data warehouse with just their own data. And it, it would be an extension of what I've already created for my internal yeah. uses. So, so you know, for a restaurant group, they can just take this data, a data model, as you said, that gets refreshed as soon as my data gets refreshed, and they can run turnkey analysis on top of it. And then, you know, we have, you know, more and more customers who are really interested in, in this technology. And I think, you know, data sharing does enable that. And I think for me, if I'm managing this, the overhead that I'm taking in terms of, you know, creating these um, virtual data warehouses is, is manageable. It's not like in the past where you have to monitor, did the extract happen? Did the transmission of the files happen? They load it correctly and all that information. So now it's it's pretty much table to table uh, replication that happens. Um, data is there, and then more importantly, I'm not constrained on the volumes, meaning that you know I can transfer terabytes within within minutes, right? So um, yeah, which is a big game changer for us. Huge, and it enables data monetization without the messiness of right. manual file transfer. And ultimately, do you envision, so right now you're sharing the data, do you envision sharing some of um, the insights maybe in an embedded solution or are you not there yet? I've thought about that a lot. Uh, do I, you know, do we provide a fully turnkey solution with, with a data warehouse and then a, a BI tool that sits on top of a predefined views? Or not predefined. <laughs> well, that, when I say predefined, meant, yeah. meant to say, could you develop some at least base worksheets that take advantage of, you know, I think in my head, I have like Tableau in my head. That's what I was thinking about it. But, um, but it could be anything. So at the moment, we don't have a lot of use cases for that, or we don't have a lot of customers that are asking for it. But in the, in the future, we may. Um, I think right now, my focus has been, you know, well, how do I enable these groups uh, to run their analytics and their own data science on top of this data without really spending the time of making API calls and redoing the you know, data processing and modeling. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, some people have said to me, well, Cindy, the other thing, if you look at a company like OpenTable and most of the companies you've worked at are digital natives. So that's why they value data more. But maybe your restaurant, your customers have not been as data savvy. Do you see a difference in this? 
I do, but let, let's just be clear. And I was thinking about this a bit unrelated to this question. Just, you know, even digital companies are not fully digital. What does this really mean? It means not all processes are digital, right? So if you still have processes that are being offline, that are critical components of your business, that means you're not fully digital, right? So um, I've been at, you know, every company I've been to, right? There was always some important offline processes that were not digital. So um, anyway, so what I, what I want to say with that is that no company is purely or 100% digital. They all yeah. have. Uh, and over time, exceptions happen. And these exceptions are the, oftentimes are not uh, fully digital, which is which is really important piece. But in terms of restaurants, um, traditionally, yes, they're not, um, they don't have a lot of digital signals to be digital. So if you think about a small restaurant that has folks coming in, they really don't have, besides the reservation book, any kind of information. But if I can tell them more about the diners, I can tell them more about the demand, I can tell them a little more about you know, how they can set their books more efficiently like their peers do. Now, you know, now these restaurants understand that, right? So like restaurants have inherently been um, completely offline. So right, but more right. and more you'll see restaurants that are being savvy and, and big restaurant groups are doing a great job of trying to see how they can increase hospitality by relying on theater. And I think this is a trend that we're going to see. I think every restaurant, every hotel, wants to provide better hospitality. And how do you provide better hospitality is by being more, you know more about your diners, you provide the service that the you know, diner or the bookers are looking for. So I think this would, uh, certainly this is how they're gonna win in the future in my opinion. Yeah, so it's always about the customer. It makes me think of a quote I came across from your VP of restaurant products, Jonathan Morin. We aren't just building products. We are educating the restaurant industry about data, data privacy, and security through your products. Absolutely. It's a process, right? And I think showing the restaurants the value of data, the easiest way is to show how this is going to make more money at the end of the day, right? And everyone, um, at the end of the day, you want to make the best decisions to increase hospitality and, and to be the best you could be essentially, right? So Yeah, definitely. So if you think about your career in different companies, so eHarmony certainly must have been an interesting data set and Yahoo before that, but how has your leadership style changed across these different organizations and levels? I think uh, the leadership style, I want to say, has necessarily changed uh, across different companies. I think perhaps what we do, certain things have changed as technologies have evolved. But I think, you know, for me, um, you know, my philosophy has always been with every data professional is, I think you caught that right away, which is data first, everything, right? So everything's about data. Um, You know, you spend, as a data professional, you always have to understand all the different nuances of the data, the better you understand the business and how it's being used, the, the best you're going to be designing uh, tools. And then more importantly, be, uh, you know, adding value to the business. So, you know, obviously, you know, Yahoo was a long time ago. Uh, this, the principles have remained the same. Um, you know, all my teams have, I have always 
want them to be you know, business first and then try to understand what problems that they're trying to solve. eHarmony's data set, extremely important, is probably the widest per-user data that we've come across, given all the different questionnaires that we had, given uh, demographics, psychographics, so all kinds of information. So certainly there's an interesting challenge. I went from Yahoo, which was extremely narrow and deep data, to extremely wide and perhaps not as deep. And then and, and to open table. I always joke like we went search to dating to dinner or, <laughs> or I should say restaurants. But uh, it, it's been an interesting, um, it, it's certainly been a very interesting journey for me. Yeah, fascinating domains for sure. And I do think if if you think about the people and the technology, sometimes we still have a divide between business and tech. You said it's about what is the business outcomes, the business value. How do you make sure that you are understanding the business model? And how do you advise your data professionals, the people on your team, that they're understanding that as well? Yeah, great question. So that's always a challenge, right? So like if you're a data professional and you're, let's say you work with the sales team, how do you make sure you understand all the different nuances and how people sell. Or if you work with finance, so one of the things that I did even early on from Yahoo days when I was managing teams in eHarmony, I had business specializations within my teams, right? So like I had folks that would work primarily with one department or maybe two departments. And these folks, I would encourage them to shadow, you know, day or two, like see how they use data. So like, I remember when I was at Yahoo, I think the biggest insights that I got or, or the inspirations I got was when I just shadowed, you know, inside sales folks. And I just sat behind them. I'm like, how do you guys sell? And how do you, what do you need to sell more? What's the insight? Right. And then understand the challenges. And I think this is good. This is going back to understand the business problems. I think the biggest issue, it's always been, you know, why products or tools or any solutions that you've developed failed is because you probably didn't understand the problem statement well enough. Spend more time. This is what I always say. It's a quote that I always, I think it was Einstein or someone said, if you, if you give me an hour to solve a problem, I'll spend 59 minutes analyzing the problem, one minute on the solution. And I think I drilled that into my folks. I said, like, understand the problem before you you know, go for the solution. And I think, and this is true. And I think this is what everyone, all data professionals really need to focus on more and more. If, if you think about, you know, even data science, if 80% of your time you spent on data preparation and 20% on anything else, you better do really good job on that 80%, right? So like yeah. focus on that, understand what you want to do and understand all the different nuances because if you miss certain things, then, then everything else um, after that is going to be off. It's the foundation, in my opinion. Yeah. I like this practice of shadowing. Uh, one analytics leader I worked with, they, he actually went and worked in the call center. Right. And his, let's say, internal stakeholders said he was so good, he actually could have ran the call center by the end. But it made the impact of that data product so much better. Absolutely. It's in every every solution. You have to understand the solutions. And in the days of you know, working in a waterfall method where, you know, someone gives you a problem and then you go back and you come out and then have a product. I think that's, it's gone. You can't Hopefully. do that. You, 
<laughs> I mean, you can, you can do it, but you're not going to be very efficient, right? So Yeah, totally, um, totally. Agile co-innovation is important. So Grant, for busy data leaders, so then what's the one newsletter, magazine they have to read or conference they have to go to in 2021? <laughs> uh, good question. I don't know if I could say one. I do personally like the Gartner um, conferences I've been attending. Well, my friends at Gartner will be pleased uh, with that answer. So that's all right. And then, so for fun, favorite sports, favorite hobby? I play soccer. Um, well, I used to, and um, I have three boys, so I'm pretty active with them. So mostly, you know, staying physically active with them. So that's, I don't have much more free time besides, you know, spending time with them and work. So what are you most grateful for? Well, I think, you know, for us um, at, o- at OpenTable, I think being part of a company or booking holdings that when the pandemic hit, I think one of the decisions that we made as a company, we said, you know what, uh, we know the restaurants are going to be impacted a lot. So we made all of our services free, not just, you know, free, you don't have to pay us now and they have to pay us back, but we completely went free. And our holding company, you know, obviously with no revenue coming in, um, kept our company intact. And we continue to work and produce software for the restaurants. We continued providing services to the restaurant industry for free. And I think for me, that was a really, uh, you know, thankful moment. And it's also, it's also great to be part of uh, a company that's, uh, you know, putting its customers first versus, um, you know, going after, you know, perhaps, capitalizing on that or, or, or putting our customers in a, in a more difficult situation. So I, I've been you know, very thankful to, be, to have a leadership that recognized that and made it possible for us um, to continue developing and providing services and then do it all for free. That is so wonderful, Grant. Grant, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. Join her on LinkedIn Live the first Thursday of each month for a live version of The Data Chief, where she'll share best practices and take your questions live. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.